Hi, I'm Annie H. Hoffman with Media and Mindset. Today, we have Reggie Middleton, who's the CEO of Vertasium and the inventor of decentralized finance. Now, Reggie, can you sum up for us what is decentralized finance? Uh, decentralized finance is basically a financial system where you don't have a central gatekeeper. Um, I call it peer-to-peer capital markets. Peer-to-peer meaning one person or entity deals with another person or entity directly. Nobody necessarily in the middle, okay? Decentralized finance is a subset of that. So let's push that to the side. What makes peer-to-peer capital markets different? Well, first defining it, one peer deals with another peer. I deal directly with you. There is no bank or exchange or broker in the middle. We deal directly. We can have others in the middle if we so choose, but it's optional. And the only reason we would choose to have somebody in the middle is if they added value to our transaction. Okay, and if they don't add value to the transaction, there's no reason for them to be there. The vast majority of Wall Street makes its money from standing in the middle and taking a fee for something that they really do not add value for. Basically getting paid for something they don't work for. With the advent of the internet, you don't need a broker to help you find houses or communicate with people. When you have a house for sale, you could post it for sale on the internet, 100,000 people see it. How much does it cost you? One month's worth of internet service, $45 maybe, not 6% of your house purchase or sales price. So that's an example how, of how a middleman can be disintermediated, taken from the middle of a transaction. So the invention, the invention is to allow broader products and services directly. Old school business back to the caveman days. I sell you a cow, you give me fish. <laughs> we don't need anybody in the middle. I love it. <laughs> Were you always interested in finance? My first interest as a child was to be a veterinarian. Um, and when I was eight, my dog, um, was, we brought him to the store. And my father got out the car and the dog tried to follow him. So he jumped out the window on the driver's side. And a car caught him midair and hit him very hard. And then he disappeared. And we drove around for hours looking for him. It was getting late, you know, sobbing and crying. We get home, and the dog is sitting there in front of the door, bleeding. Um, <sighs> he got up pretty bad. Um, we called the emergency vet. The emergency vet, you know, gave me instructions. I still remember. Um, I had to take three aspirin and I had to put it directly into the wound. Oh, okay. wow. Stitched the wound close. And he had me take aspirin and put it in peanut butter and give it to the dog, which the dog allowed me to do. And he was in significant pain. Um, and then I realized at that point, I probably didn't want to be a vet. That's not, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I thought of that was, you know, playing with the cute puppies and petting the rabbit. Yeah. So, you know, major surgeries on dying animals. I'm like, nah, it's probably not for me. So, and then um, I was always interested in how things work. So, after that, I, I used to take apart the vacuum cleaners and the TVs and put them back together, make sure they work. My bent Your is parents must have had fun with that, right? It actually turned out better because my mother thought a vacuum cleaner wouldn't work. I'm like, no, I can rebuild this. So, you know, of course, when I tried on my father's car, it was a different story, but you know, that's. <laughs> now, when um, you were growing up, what do you think about your childhood that inspired you for such success? 
And what I think is also fascinating about you, Reggie, I come from Ohio, a very blue collar type family. I'm not sure exactly what your childhood was like, but I always had these big dreams. I wanted to work at a TV network and I visualized it. And when I was 19, I ended up working on Monday Night Football. So for you, what was your childhood like and how do you think that inspired you for such success? Well, what I thought my childhood was like was not actually what my childhood was like. So I thought that we had everything in the world. Um, Anything that I asked for, I would get within reason. And my father would try and get it for me, even if it wasn't reasonable. Um, I did not realize that we were working class until well after I went to college because I never wanted for anything. Um, I loved animals. So my parents got me a lot of pets. I wanted a tiger. And while many parents let you out of your mind, you know, go to your room, my father started the process of getting me a tiger. Um, <laughs> found out That's at amazing. that time in the early 70s, early to mid 70s, you needed a license from the state to get a tiger. That was it. And to find a tiger, of course. Um, so my parents gave me a lot of love, a lot of support. Weren't perfect, <laughs> but they were perfect for me. I grant my, I give my parents full credit um, for any success is that I may have. And it's arguable whether I'm successful or not. You know, I define success as attainment of lofty goals that would make the world or your surroundings a better place. You know, theoretically, you know, you finish all levels of Grand Theft Auto on PlayStation 5 in 10 minutes, you might consider yourself successful, but that's not, you know, my definition. How do you define success? Uh, attainment of those lofty goals that make the world a better place. So my first level of real success was raising healthy, um, intellectually wealthy, and productive children. And I have done that. Um, 30, 21, almost 30, 21, and almost 16 are my children's age. And they're just the best kids in the world, you know, all oh. the way around, you know. Are any the- of them following you in your footsteps? Um, my middle son um, is a financial genius. My oldest son is a genius, but he took the um, animal lover route that I tried to instill all my children um, to the next level. He actually runs an animal shelter. Oh, that's wonderful. But he's the CEO of the not-for-profit, and the not-for-profit owns an animal shelter. And then, Reggie, do you think... Um... And my daughter, it, I'm sorry, I have to. Can't leave oh, my yeah, daughter. of course. Please tell but me about your daughter. She's 15, but she is extremely smart, arguably smarter than all of us, definitely at math. Um, <laughs> and um, she helps me out because, unlike many other people, possibly you, I don't need Google because she knows everything. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so she'll be ruling the world one day. <laughs> Do you, I'm sure to be honest with you, I bet you have a genius IQ. I have no idea. I, I don't necessarily believe in uh, a written intelligence quotient test. IQ is not what makes a successful person. Now, successful people have a lot of smart people working for them. Okay. But, you know, you do need to be smart, but I think drive and perseverance and the ability to strategize is much, much more um, uh, important in terms of the mix that goes into the agreement of success. 
Absolutely. You know, Reggie, you are known for having kind of this outside the box type thinking. Where do you think that came from? I mean, were you always like that from a, I mean, it sounds like you were always kind of doing a little (laughs) different things when you were a child. Do you think that was just fostered by your parents' support, your Um, curiosity? I want to say I'm like the most capable, smartest person in the world, but you want to know the truth? Secret between you and I, at least until you broadcast this. Nobody ever let me inside the box. So I lived outside the box and I learned to be very comfortable outside the box because that's where I live. And so if you put somebody in a totally new environment, it, it takes some time to adjust. They may be uncomfortable. I live here. I'm more comfortable outside the box than in the box. So if I'm in the box, I break out. And I think also, don't you think being different should be celebrated? I think sometimes our education system doesn't celebrate that as much. They try to put everyone in a box. And I've noticed that myself, even raising three children, that I try to celebrate their own journey and their own differences. Well, um, I don't know if you, if you Google me, among all the other things you may find, positive and or negative, um, I am big in teaching because I have kids, um, even though most of them are grown, but I taught them and their friends in classes, in school, after school, extracurricular, et cetera. I created my own curriculum in the school. Um, I, I bent on problem solving, finance, economics, engineering, and life sciences. Um, and global uh, geopolitics, global history, et cetera. Let's just put it, I'm trying to be politically correct. It causes me to burn an extra brain cycle or two. <laughs> You're all football people, right? The school system was not designed to make you successful. It was designed to support people who were successful. Okay, mm-hmm. successful as in at the top of the socioeconomic hierarchy. So of course they are going to um, emphasize being part of the box. You know, getting that job, working in that office, aspiring for the corner office. You should be aspiring, right, for the entity that owns a corner office and owns the building <laughs> and hires the people. The best way to determine whether you're in the working class or the socialist class is wait till tomorrow morning, roughly about 10 a.m. Okay. If you have to go to work, you're part of the working class. Period. It doesn't matter what the work is. Brain surgeon, accountant, janitor, carpenter, painter everything in between, you have to work to sustain yourself and your family. If you're part of the capitalist class, your capital is what sustains you. Now, that's not saying capitalists don't work. What I'm saying is capitalists don't have to work. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, capitalists work very, very hard because that's how they got there unless they inherited it. And even those who inherited it tend to lose it if they don't have a certain mindset and work. The difference is they don't have to work to maintain XYZ lifestyle. Those in a working class work, and to keep them in the working class, they are taught that working is the goal, right? Having assets and equity should be the goal of control, but they're taught that working is the goal. They're also taught to employ debt, and debt creates a trap where you have to work to pay the debt service, and you pay the debt service, and you have to work, etc. There's nothing wrong with debt, but debt is a specific tool. It's like a screwdriver. You don't take a screwdriver and try and put a nail in the wood with it. It doesn't work. So debt is what is used to um, attain something that has cash flows and income. Cash flows and income pays the debt off. And eventually you own the product 
outright. Or if you really want to get speculative, is used to attain something that you normally couldn't afford, but is of significant value. Okay. The working class has been taught to use debt as cash or currency. And so you go into debt immediately, instantaneously enslaved to the system, instantaneously. And then, Reggie, why do you think that you've been so good at um, predicting financial forecasts? I mean, they do call you the Nostradamus of Wall Street. (laughs) (laughs) Well, technically, I'm not predicting it. I'm reading and doing math, and I'm not good at it. Like, my daughter's very good at math. Um, I couldn't help her with her math. <laughs> I can't speak that language. That's but funny. I am, <laughs> I am very, very good at counting money. I'm very good at detecting people lying. So once it comes to financial math, I'm strong. Um, and here's another secret. Listen, okay. 2 plus 2 doesn't equal 149. It doesn't. <laughs> and... Even if you're not good at math and you might be off, you could be off by 50%. You'll get six. It's still not close to 149. So when you see two plus two and then you see an equal sign, and on the other side of the equal sign, you have a three or four digit number, somebody's lying to you. There's something wrong. It's just that simple. Two plus two also doesn't equal zero. So once you learn how to value things properly and you see the value off kilter, you see the two sides of the equal sign are not truly equal, then you have the opportunity to take action on it. Now you have things such as time, the reason why there's uh, disequilibrium, et cetera, but it shows you there's opportunity there. So every time there was a prediction, it was really just me reading financial statements and running two plus two equals. And then when you created um, Vertasium and invented this, um, system for decentralizing finance. I read and I saw some of your interviews where you said, <clears throat> actually, it was kind of like a, you couldn't believe that no one had already thought of that, right? That you. Yeah, I, <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was on a, what's the name of it? I thought I was on a the, reality show. Yeah. Well, see, I'm old. So the old version of the reality show was, uh, it was uh, a camera. The oh, hit, yeah. The hit camera. <laughs> candid yeah, camera. Yeah. yeah, candid camera. <laughs> I'm reading it. I'm looking over my shoulder like, this, is this for real? So I said, <laughs> well, in the remote chance that I am the first one to discover this, I dropped what I was doing, the advisory, the prediction of business, and went into blockchain. That was 2013. Went down a rabbit hole and haven't come up for air yet. You know, because I also like to talk about media, how do you think you are a journalist? I mean, you started the Boom Bust blog. And what was your inspiration for starting that? And then I want to get into like how you've been treated in the media. Okay. Well, I started it because um, I used to be a real estate investor. Well, I did a lot of things. Okay. But right before the blog, I was a real estate investor. Um, And I did fairly well. I started banks and insurance companies and brokers and real home builders and commercial real estate trusts and everything. And um, I wanted to start a hedge fund because I wanted access to leverage, the ability to borrow money to multiply my returns and losses if you don't you know, get it right. Because hedge funds were getting 20 times leverage and I can only get two times leverage as a retail investor. And so because nobody knew who I was, I didn't go to Harvard University. I went to a historically black college, Harvard University. I didn't work on a Goldman Sachs trading desk. I worked for myself, Reggie Middleton, LLC. 
Um, and I looked and sounded very different from everybody from that genre. So um, I said, I'm going to create a blog, a newsletter, you know, to show everybody how smart I was. And I gave up my um, advice, predictions, calculations for free. I hired my own analysts offshore because I didn't trust Southside Wall Street. I don't believe their analysts are truly analytical. I believe that they're salespeople to support their other operations, you know, underwriting, you know, stock sales, brokerage, et cetera. And then 9 a.m. one day, I got a call from Morgan Stanley and they asked me if I would turn on three of their um, prop, the, the strategic trading, proprietary trading desk or something, um, if they wired me 20000 I'm like, yeah, <laughs> and that I used to help pay for the offshore analysts. And that's how Boomba's blog got started. And I stopped that to go full time into the um, blockchain, the crypto business in 2013. So it had roughly a six, seven year run. And I'm about to, I'm actually restarting Boomba's blog now because we're going to write these reports over again. They're like between 20 and 50 pages extremely detailed and very, very accurate. Um, and we're going to start doing it on private and public companies in the crypto blockchain and distributed ledger space. Um, you asked about how the media was treating me. I was a media darling uh, back then. I have sizzle reels with you know Bloomberg and CNBC. And I introduced DeFi back in 2014 right on CNBC Street Fox Signs with Amanda Drury and everybody else. Hi, Amanda, if you want. And he won the stock draft picks twice. Right, I did that. Um, and then when I started making progress in the blockchain space, real progress, I believe, cut off, totally cut off. Um, now, the only press that I get out of the major industry-specific rags is negative. So I get hacked and I get, I'm not going to name that entity this time. But I get hacked and I have um, headlines that says um, crypto company says they were hacked or alleged. Everybody else gets hacked, they get hacked. When mm -hmm. I say it, it's an, I allege I was hacked. Well, that's not really that objective. Um, the SEC, uh, the very aggressive regulator, came after me. They alleged I was fraudulent, pushing patents I wouldn't get, et cetera, et cetera. That's all over the media. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm saying, hmm, now there's a lot of positive to report on. Um, the financial Nostradamus, um, I don't call myself that, but I have a track record that is better than, I'd say, 99% of anybody who come across. That's extraordinary. Um, they had the SEC allegations. One of those many allegations were um, misleading investors and saying I was marketing patent applications that I knew would not get I'm not going to discuss that since they're very aggressive and I don't want to tangle with them anymore. But they could publish that. They somehow forgot to publish that the actual patents were granted more than once, the largest yeah. jurisdictions in the world, and the patents are very strong. They're what I call foundational technology patents. And they give me basically control over much, if not most, of the crypto space. Looking at the very one-sided reporting where negative stuff flies freely, positive stuff doesn't fly at all. Um, I look into why it happens, and I know it's why. The perception or the mantra of crypto is that it's decentralized. 
and power is spread along, you know, many, many people, mm-hmm. and that's what makes it strong. This is not the case. The entities that own the primary news outlets are the same entities that own the largest investment funds, which is the same entities or entity or person who knows. Okay, I do, but I'm not going to go there. That owns um, um, a lot of the uh, large private investments and a lot of the companies that uh, I would allege are infringing, which is the same entities that do a lot of the lobbying, et cetera. So if um, the entity that owns the news space thinks that giving a patent that would give control over their investments, uh, additional expenses, you have a choice. You can choose to report on this as a reporting entity should, or you can attempt to give yourself a leg up and try and keep this as quiet as possible. Um, Or it could be racial discrimination. It could be they just don't like me. My breath might smell. Who knows? Okay. But that has worked to my favor because as everybody refused to give credit where I think credit is due, they took my technology and they just pushed it further and further and further into the industry and it's embedded more and more. Where if they're in proper reporting, maybe some entities would say, hey, let's go in a different direction. Now it's too late. Now my technology mm-hmm. is the bedrock of much of the industry. So if you want to know what's going to happen to these public, big public companies, these prominent private companies, because the media machine doesn't want to run or include Reggie Middleton, there was one place to get it. And it's not just going to be a news article. It's going to be a news article with a significant analytical reporter tied to it that will normally cost you $15,000, dollars $30,000. These are going to be freebies. And it's going to be available to everybody. I am decentralizing and distributing knowledge. It's available to everybody. And I think that's why it's so important. I think that you, I think you would be such an inspiration to so many people in your story. And that's why I think I was just so drawn. As soon as I heard your name, I was on a YouTube channel and I was so fascinated by you. And I just started reading everything I possibly could. But I'm also interested to go back, if you don't mind, about the mindset. Do you practice anything that we could maybe share with uh, the viewers? Is there anything, um, you know, I I know I practice visualization. I always try to do affirmations. Um, I write in my journal. Are there any things that you could share with us that you do? I have a couple of, uh, not rules, but I guess mindset templates that I push upon my children. They will probably say I annoy them with. Tomato, tomato, right? Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, I try to listen more than I speak. You know, a lot of people talk and they think when they talk, they sound smart and they want to communicate. You get more communication done by listening. You learn more by listening. Okay. Um, Very powerful. And when I say listen, I mean listen. That way you not only using your ears, but using your eyes, sometimes even your hands, we have to to know exactly what the person is trying to communicate versus what they are communicating and what they give them reservation, what gives them pause, what motivates them. It's very important to listen. Um, two is to realize that, you know, people are people. Um, so the high levels of the socioeconomic strata, fancy words for saying the powerful people, I didn't say rich people are not powerful people. 
because um, there's a difference. And I teach um, socioeconomic stratification of my kids and my students, et cetera. Fancy word for saying social class. Um, a lot of people, especially those who don't have a lot of power, confuse and conflate power and money. But I can give you an example of two people, two black men, okay? Who do you think is richer, Little Wayne or Barack Obama? Little Wayne. Who do you think is more powerful? Barack. See, now think it through why, and as you realize why, and you start peeling the layers of the onion off, you'll see what denotes power versus money. There's some, they're not a lot, but there's some Congress members and senators who are barely above, especially in New York, barely above working class. I think they have a salary of about 160 to 200 and change. Mm -hmm. But in some places in New York, that's going to pay for groceries and rent. <laughs> and you're back to where you started from. But they are very, very powerful, though, especially relative to the money that they have. Okay. Now, there, and I'm not saying, I'm not, I'm, I'm taking politicians off the table. And I'm just talking about the upper echelon of the power structure in general. Um, in order, people who are in power want to stay in power. It's human nature. People who are not in power, normally and naturally, with everything remaining natural, want to attain that power. So it's impossible for the minority to defeat the majority physically because it's just more of them. Okay, so you have to create devices and mechanisms to prevent them from rising to the top. Those devices mm -hmm. and mechanisms cannot be physical or you lose. Okay, it's like a small person fighting 45 big people, right? You just can't, you don't want to get a physical confrontation with them. So what do you do? Well, you convince the big people to fight each other. And if they fight each other, then you don't have to worry about them fighting you. One <laughs> or two may have, you know, an epiphany. I'm like, wait a minute, why am I still? Wait. <laughs> and even if you realize that he's still getting beat up by everybody else, two people have an epiphany and they're able to stop, they become a threat. But now you have to deal with two versus 45. Okay. And the best way to get people to turn on each other is to limit their perceptions and limit their ability to think critically individually. And now instead of us teaming up, going after where we should be going the prize. We are now working with each other over absolute nonsense. Like mm -hmm. a job that none of us were going to get in the first place, <laughs> but we're going to fight over it, et cetera, et cetera. So it is in the best interest of those at the top of the um, echelon to foster um, naming, grouping, prejudices, because that, prevent, that takes everybody's eyes off the prize. It's in the best interest of those who are not at the upper echelon to avoid that mm -hmm. and work with those who are best work, who best work with them. Okay. And take care of yourselves, your friends and your family. Okay. And your friends and your family can be anybody if you have your eyes open and then you aim for the prize. So you see there's, that is class conflict, but class conflict broken down in a very simplistic, but very realistic way. And it doesn't have to be class conflict. If you have a very, um, vibrant economy. I'm, I'm running down a rabbit hole. So I'm, I'm no, but I, a question I have for you too is about Vertasium, because I think this is actually something like even myself, like 
if for me to go buy vertasium, I have to go kind of through a process, right? I can't, I, I'm concerned about it being complicated for the everyday person, this whole world that we're entering and how we can make it simplified because I mean, I'm dyslexic, so maybe I'm a little bit at a disadvantage, but I do feel like I, I said, gosh, you know, I really want to buy vertasium, but I have to go through. Uh, so anyway, I'll let you, you are the CEO of vertasium and <laughs> explain to us how to do it. I don't own a single vertasium token. because Wow. Was not one. Yes, I created it. I put the value behind it. Not a single one. Um, the reason why you can't buy one easily is because of the fall that was put on by the SEC and the allegations made against me and the company and um, the reputation damage that was done, combined with the fact that much of the industry um, didn't want to carry my products even before then. That was probably their error, but it's irrelevant. So what can you do about that? Contact your local Congress member, okay, your local senator, um, and have them go over the story. The actual story, not what you read in the media. You can download the SEC's allegations. You can download my answer. My answer is 460-something pages. I think the SEC's allegations is 30 to 60 pages, I think. Just the page count shows there's a significant difference. I'm not allowed to speak on this safely. Okay. But um, it's all public. So if you read their allegations and my answer, you could go talk to the Veritasium community, almost 4,000 people who I allegedly defrauded. Go to the Veritasium official group on Telegram and ask them what's going on. And those are the people who were at the root of the SEC's uh, actions, who they were allegedly protecting. You do need uh, regulation. You do need enforcement of bad actors. There's plenty of them. But... The enforcement should be um, clear. The rules should be mm-hmm. written down. It shouldn't be arbitrary or capricious. You should not favor one project over another. Okay. Um, it appears that one project is getting a lot of favoritism over the others. I'm not going to mention any names. Mm-hmm. And that's just really uncool because the government makes a, a horrible um, portfolio manager. It really does. So they should <laughs> not be picking winners and losers. They should be enforcing rules and enforcing it evenly across the board. Luckily for me, um, my team and I did a lot of work and we were forced out of one business and we landed dead smack into one of our other businesses in a very, very, very powerful position. Um, I'm in a much better position now than I've ever been in my life. Um, Oh, I'm so happy for you, Reggie. And then now with the patent, it seems like everything's opening up. Yeah, the the patent's going to be, I mean, it's going to cause war because a lot of people don't feel that I should be in possession of assets that I developed and earned on my own, unfortunately. And a lot of people just don't want to compete. You know, we'll see how it works out. Um, I wish it didn't have to be that way um, because I'm definitely not a teacher's person at all. So we'll see how it works out. But um, if you believe in like David and Goliath, the good guys versus the bad guys, you know, watch out for David. Don't sleep on him. Okay. I do believe the good still wins. Well, thank you. The smile is <laughs> so bright and effervescent. It's just making the whole world. <laughs> and thank you so much, Reggie, for your time. This has been amazing. Well, 